I just have um, one other notice. Um, over the next, well, before the beginning of December, um, you'll all be um, receiving uh, one of these books from one of the elders. Uh, one of the elders will give it to you, um, one of these books. So it's just a, it's a, an Advent devotional book uh, that we're going to do over, well, Advent, basically. Um, so um, it's, it's called Finding Hope Under Bethlehem Skies, and it's based on the book of Ruth. Uh, so we thought that'd be good. Like we did last year when we had Advent Bible studies. This year we don't have Advent Bible studies because things have got a bit back to normal. Um, but we thought it'd be good that we just continue, and so we're all sort of looking at the same thing over Advent. It just helps us to focus our hearts on Christmas. So at some point... Uh, an elder, one of the elders, will either knock on your door or see you at church uh, with one of those, or more than one of those. Uh, if there's two of you in a family, you get two. There you go. What more can you ask for? If there's six, you might only get two, but uh, there you go. Right. Uh, Revelation uh, chapter 20. <clears throat> We're going to, um, I'm going to read the whole of the chapter uh, this morning. And um, this, I've entitled this the, uh, the Final Victory Over Evil. Um, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, holding the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus, and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection, the second death, has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to see the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. The fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne, and, and him who was seated on it, earth and sky, fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. <clears throat> uh, so today is a Remembrance Sunday, as we've already said. It's a time when our nation remembers those who fought and died in conflicts to give us the freedom that we enjoy. And over the past few days, I'm sure if you've watched any news channel, you'll have seen the media often pick up on stories uh, of heroism and you know stories of victories that, that happened during wars in the past. 
uh, just to, to apply the, the cost of our freedom to us. Um, so today, as we look at this sort of final victory, this final victory over evil, I thought it was a sort of, it's a fitting scripture really for today, as we think about, this is a, probably the last um, part which is quite difficult in Revelation for us to, to think about, really. Um, <clears throat> today our, our, our passage is really about a final battle and a final victory. It's about uh, what happens after death. It's about the defeat of evil, <coughs> excuse me, um, and it acts as a forward to the next two chapters. So the next two chapters we're going to look at over the next uh, four weeks are uh, about that freedom that, that, that we have as Christians or we will have um, in the future. And today <coughs> we are confronted with a very simple message, one that flows through the Bible all the way through uh, the Bible. Um, and that is there's a victory to be had. There is a victory to be had. And that victory uh, culminates in, in, in a life, uh, eternal life, and, and a wonderful inheritance and joy and peace and freedom. But there's also a defeat to be had, and that defeat ends up, uh, if you're on the losing side, where the dust all settles with, with dire consequences, really, as we shall see. <coughs> Excuse me, I've had a bad cold this week, so you might have to forgive me for drinking lots of water. On, um, on March the 8th, 1945, sorry, news broke that the, the Germans had surrendered and the Second World War came to an end. And most of you may have seen scenes of celebrations, especially in, in London, when that happened. <clears throat> but of course, in Germany, it was a day of defeat uh, and a day of, of doom, really, uh, a day when they had to accept the consequences of the folly of the nation. Um, and really, for up until, or for 75 years, really, the German people remembered what we call VE Day um, in a time of, of sort of somber reflection, really. Uh, and to many Germans, even up to a few years ago, it was still something that hurt, uh, and the past really hurt them. But last year, uh, in Berlin, they declared May the 8th uh, a bank holiday. Uh, uh, as a freedom from Nazi ty tyranny. Um, 75, the hurt of 75 years was enough for them. And so they decided, that the German government decided, enough's enough. We've, we've, we've done this for, for so long. You know, we need to move on now. And they had the liberty to do that, and so they should move on after 75 years. They have the liberty to do that. Um, that's not the case. When we, when we look at the, the final battle of Armageddon, we see what happens there and those who are defeated on the, on the, the side that is defeated. When that battle is all over, when the, when the dust settles, there won't be 75 years to reflect and think about it or 750 years. The consequences will, you know, you, you won't be able to go back and think, oh, you know, wish we would have done it this way or that way. Um, the consequences of their actions at that point uh, for people who are on the wrong side, um, are, are dire, as we're going to see. And so therefore, this scripture that we have before us is still as, as, as important at this very moment in the world as it was when John first wrote it all those years ago. So today we're going to look at it in two points. Firstly, the final victory, and then secondly, the final judgment. So firstly, the final victory. <clears throat> so I'm following on from how I looked at this last Sunday, 
with the thousand years. And last Sunday I said that Satan had been bound throughout the church age. But a time is coming when his bounds will be loosed and he'll be set free for one final moment. This is the great tribulation that Jesus spoke about in Matthew 24. The time when he said there's going to be, uh, you know, rumors of wars and wars and extreme persecution of the church and all those things, when he actually said it will be a time of great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now. And we've seen that. As we've gone through Revelation, we've seen that over and over again. We've seen this distress, this persecution, the time when the false prophet is at his worst, the time when the, the, the spirit, the Antichrist is strong, and then the time when the, the last Antichrist will rise, the man of lawlessness that we read about in two Thessalonians. And even though the earth has been decimated by the judgments of God and there's been this great tribulation, uh, Satan will still be able to gather this army to fight this final battle against uh, God and his people. And this is, as far as I'm concerned, what we read about here is the same battle that we read about in Revelation 19. Uh, John just uses different language here. He uses different language to make a point here. Uh, as I said to you right from the very beginning, you have to read Revelation in the context of the Old Testament, otherwise we don't understand it um, at all. And so he's drawing a picture in the minds of the people who were going to receive this. Now, in this uh, scripture, especially in verse 8, uh, John speaks about Gog and Magog. Now, you might be thinking, what's all that about? Right? You might not be. You might have a 100% you might know completely what this is all about. But you might not. Um, but John would have known that the people that, who were first receiving this in the first century would have understood this completely. They would have understood what he was talking about. They would have drawn a picture in their heads of what they knew. Because John is drawing a picture from the Old Testament. He's drawing a picture from the book of Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel was a prophet who was... Uh, so the Jews were... Uh, when the Babylonians came, they came sort of a few times to raid Judah. And when they came, they took uh, different sets of exiles off at different times, as you may know. Daniel and his friends went off, but Jerusalem still stood. And so there was Jews in exile in Babylon, and God wrote, uh, brought Ezekiel up to be a prophet to them. So Ezekiel prophesied about the fall of Jerusalem and about the fall of the nations that caused the fall of Jerusalem. So if you read Ezekiel, the first 33 chapters are mainly about that. Um, but then after that, we have a small section in Ezekiel <coughs> that deals with hope for uh, for Israel um, and for the people. And um, it talks about the Messiah. <coughs> so that, that sort of starts um, around sort of... Sorry, I'm in Jeremiah, not Ezekiel, so I better not read that. Um, that sort of starts in chapter 36. Um, so I'm going to read... I can't read all this to you, but I'm just going to read... I'm going to pick some bits out here so you can see where this all fits together and how... New Testament Christians would have understood this. So in chapter 36 of Ezekiel, he writes this in verse 24. So he's talking about the fall of Jerusalem and how you know everything's going to be destroyed and so on and so on. And then he says, some of these words you'll know really well, I'm sure. Verse 24, chapter 36. For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart 
and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So he starts to talk about the Messiah and what's going to happen when the Messiah comes. And in chapter 37, we had that well-known passage about the Valley of the Dry Bones, about new life uh, coming um, in the first part of chapter 37. And then in the second part of chapter 37, he, he talks about the Messiah again and talks about him coming from the line of Joseph and David. So in chapter 37, verse 24, it says this, My servant David, or David the king, had obviously already died hundreds of years beforehand, so he's talking about the Messiah now. My servant David will be king over them. They will have one shepherd. These are words, when, when I'm reading this, you focus your hearts and your minds on where you've heard these before. Focus your hearts on the minds of the words of Jesus and the New Testament. My servant David will be king over them and they will have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy, when my sanctuary is among them forever. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so I hope you can see that. I hope you can see the, the picture there of, of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, bringing eternal life. Not just to the people of Israel, but to the church as well. His people. So we have that picture. Here's God's promise. The Messiah is going to come and the eternal reign is going to begin. Then if we jump forward to chapter 40, chapter 40 starts with the restoration of the temple in Jerusalem when the Jews go back and the restoration of Jerusalem. And it looks like it's just about Jerusalem and the temple but some of it doesn't fit with what happened. So in chapter 47 of Ezekiel, you read about a great river flowing through the center of the city. There's no river flowing through Jerusalem. So you think, oh, hold on a second, where, where have I read that before? Well, you read that, hopefully, in, in Revelation, or we will do, uh, in Revelation 22, when we describe the, the eternal city, the new Jerusalem, and the river that flows through it. And so Ezekiel is giving the, the Jews not only a picture of returning to Jerusalem, but a picture of an eternal home. So in chapters 36 and 37, we have chapters about new life in Christ, new life in the Messiah. And in chapter 40 onwards, you have uh, chapters about uh, a new eternal life in, in the new Jerusalem. And in between that, chapters 38 and 39, they're all about Gog and Magog. So here you see the picture that John is drawing to the people. They could see, they would have understood this. He, and when you read these, these I'm, not going to give, I'm not going to read the whole of chapter 38 and 39. If you're really interested, you can read them when you get home. I'm going to pick out some bits uh, for you. But when you read it, you read the language of Revelation 19 and the Revelation 20. You read the language of Armageddon when you read Ezekiel 38 and 39. And Ezekiel was writing this, what, 600 BC. But these words go all the way through to Revelation and into the, the end times. Now, I'll just pick out some verses for you. So chapter 38, 7 to 9. 
So this is it's a prophecy against Gog. Gog, uh, Gog was a king in in the book of Ezekiel. Gog's a king, and Magog is a, is the land that he comes from. Okay, um, and they 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 they're seen as the enemy, the evil horde, if you like. Um, I'm sure you all are aware of that kind of thing. Um, verse seven, chapter thirty-eight. Get ready. Be prepared, you and all the hordes gathered about you, and take command of them. After many days, you will be called to arms. In future years, you will invade a land that has recovered from war, whose people were gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They had been brought out from the nations, and now all of them live in safety. You and all your troops, and the many nations with you, go up, advancing like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land. Well, I've just read you that, haven't I, in Revelation chapter 20. That, nation, that Satan's going to gather this army. It's going to be like a storm across the land. You can see the picture that John is drawing for us here. This evil horde that's going to come against God's people. It's a picture of Armageddon again for us. In verse 18 of chapter 38, um, <clears throat> He says this, John writes this, uh, Ezekiel writes this, this is what will happen in that day when Gog attacks the land of Israel. My hot anger will be aroused, declares the sovereign Lord. In my zeal and fiery wrath, I declare that at that great, at that time, there will be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, every creature that moves along the ground and all the people on the face of the earth will tremble at my presence. The mountains will be overturned, the cliffs will crumble and every wall will fall to the ground. I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Sovereign Lord. Every man's sword will be against his brother. I will execute the judgment upon them with plague and bloodshed. I will pour down torrents of rain, hailstones and burning sulphur on him and on his troops and on the many nations with him. And so I will show my greatness and my holiness and I will make myself known in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Again, this is a picture of Armageddon because that's not happened. This is still to come. This is pictures that we've read about in Revelation. In chapter 39, verse 6, he says this, I will send fire on Margog and on those who live in safety in the coastlands, and they will know that I am the Lord. And we just read about that in Revelation 20, the fire that comes down from God. In chapter 39, verse 17, it says this, and this takes us back to the picture in, uh, uh, in um Chapter 19 of Revelation, where the angel calls the birds to feast on the, the bodies of those who are destroyed at the end of the Battle of Armageddon. So chapter 39, 17, it says this, Son of man, this is what the sovereign Lord says, call out to every kind of bird and all the wild animals, assemble and come together from all around to the sacrifice I am preparing for you, the great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel. There you will eat flesh and drink blood. So, I'm just trying to draw this picture because for the Jews, Gog and Magog were a huge thing in their eschatology, in their whole end times thinking. And this has obviously been translated into the church. So the Jewish thinking about the end times had been translated into the church. And so when John is writing Revelation and he's thinking about his, those who are going to stand or sit or whatever they did in Smyrna and Philadelphia and Ephesus and all those churches... He knows the picture that this, this will draw in their heads, the symbolism of this. Because you, you, know, you go all the way through the New Testament and you think these words are never mentioned. And then all of a sudden John mentions them in Revelation 20. They marched across the breadth of the earth. Uh, sorry. Uh, 
here's Satan, he goes out uh, to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. What's all that about? If you, you, you have to understand this, don't you? So it's obvious that this represents the nations that will rise up in the last days against God and his people. This is what this is all about. The evil nations. And it's those evil nations led by Satan that will be defeated at the end. They will be defeated, God says. And Satan, who's led them, who's the new Gog, the new king, will be defeated with them. And this is an important moment in time in the whole of the the Bible. If you remember back to Revelation 12, I don't know if you can, but we looked at the fall of Satan uh, in Revelation 12, verses 7 to 9. There was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with them. Isaiah writes about this. We, when we looked at Isaiah a few years ago, again, we looked at this. Isaiah 14, 12 to 14. The, the rebellion of Satan. Isaiah 14. How you have fallen uh, from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the sons of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Saffron. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. When Satan rebelled, God did not destroy him, but he hurled him down. And he, he God allowed Satan to, to bring temptation into the life of man, into Eve, and to, to do that work. But as I said last week, Satan has been bound because of Jesus' work on the cross. And he will be allowed a free hand again. But ultimately, his fate is sealed. This is his ultimate defeat here. As he marches out, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And this is the point when evil is finally destroyed. This is that moment in time. And it's something that, that is celebratory because it's that moment when the, the, the final judgment comes and as we're going to see starting next week, the new heaven and the new earth are, are, are created by God himself. The final victory over evil That's what we read here in these verses. And that leads us to our second point, the final judgment. So the final judgment. Um, This is something that's always going to come. When Paul was preaching in Athens, um, he said this to the leaders of, of Athens. He said, For God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And these verses from 11 to 15 in Revelation 20 are those verses. This is that moment in time, that final judgment. Now, this is dismissed in our modern society, and I understand that completely. <coughs> people tend to think that, well, people think in, in, our, in our world that their consequences have no actions in this world. I don't know why they think that, but they do sometimes. But people tend to believe totally that, consequences that, we, that the consequences of our actions now are not eternal. And that's sort of preached by, uh, you know, our 
our, the spirit of the Antichrist in our society, even by the false prophet in the church. That's kind of preached as well. And people suck it up, don't they? People suck that all up. They like the thought of their, their, their actions having no eternal consequences. Even though it goes against their conscience and even goes against the laws of man because they un people understand, like a day of reckoning, don't they? They understand that. You know, if you, if you drive too fast past a speed camera, you know there's going to be a day of reckoning. You know, if you steal something in front of a CCTV camera, you know there's going to be a day of reckoning. If you assault somebody in front of a crowd, there's going to be a day of reckoning. You know that. Your mind tells you that. Your conscience tells you that. You know it's coming. And although our society dismisses our, those actions, actions as being eternal, the Bible does not. And the Bible says they are eternal. Every consequence, every sinful wrong action is being stored up. The Bible tells us that. And, and this section reminds us that this, there is a universal judgment coming for everybody. Um, in verse 13 of Revelation 20, uh, John says this, And the sea gave out the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave out the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. These words are meant to convey a universal Judgment. So Hades is the Greek word for the place of the dead, where people who died were, were, were thought to go. But the reason he mentions the sea is because in ancient cultures, in Greek culture and Roman culture especially, if you died at sea, because the sea is a place of chaos, you were lost forever if you died at sea. There was sort of no comeback if you died at sea. And so John includes Hades and the sea because he wants to say to everybody, this is a universal judgment. Everybody who's ever died, everybody will stand before God. Everyone will stand before this throne. And everyone will be judged. And the Bible tells us that each person was judged according to what they had done. Jesus himself said in Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man is going to come in his, in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Paul writing to the church in Corinth in chapter 5, uh, verse 10, in his second letter, says this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Each person will be judged according to what they had done. Now, of course, that brings up the age-old problem that people seem to have. They seem to think that, you know, will I, if I've done a lot of good stuff, will that outweigh my bad stuff? That's how, that's how ancient cultures see it, uh, saw it, uh, and that's how people still see it today. I think if people have got any interest in heaven, that's how they see things, don't they, in, in the main. But that's not the whole story, is it? Everyone will be judged according to what they have done, yes. But when everyone's deeds are exposed, sin will be exposed, won't it? That's what will happen. doesn't matter what deeds people have done. That's when sin will be exposed. And it's sin that prevents us having this relationship with God, isn't it? It's sin that prevents anybody getting access into the kingdom of heaven, 
and living eternally with God. Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Paul, in Galatians 5.19-21, says this, The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now you can go through that list like everyone else would. And you can cross all those things. Well, our sexual immorality, that's not me. Impurity, no. I don't even know what debauchery means, so that's not me either. Um, witchcraft, no. Uh, uh, I don't know what dissensions are, so no. Factions, no, that's not me. Drunkenness, no. And orgies, no. Um, I'm doing okay here, pretty good. Um, had a fit of rage now and again. Bit of jealousy, selfish ambition, envy. Ugh. Not doing so good now. There's not a single person on the planet who's ever lived apart from Jesus who could go through that list and cross them all out and say, none of these apply to me. Because one of them applies to, you, to me and to you and to everyone else on the planet and everyone else who's listening to this, if they're listening to it at all. And if anyone says that they don't, the Bible says in 1 John 1, 1.8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Romans 3.23 says, For we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means that when John writes here, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and the dead were judged according to what they had done, in the books, that we're all in the books. Everyone's in the books. That's pretty bad news, that is. But, for what else the Bible says? Because John also says, another book was opened, which is the book of life. This is a book that does not contain deeds, but a book that contains names. This is the important bit. A book that contains names. Whose names? Daniel 12.1 says, At the time, Michael, the great priest who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress, such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, God's people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Jesus himself said, Do not rejoice the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Paul, when he's writing to Philippi, said this, Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. The writer of the Hebrew says, But you come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. John, writing early in Revelation, said, All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, uh, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. A book of names. This is what, this is the important bit. 
isn't it here? Now, in my understanding, and I'm fine if you don't agree with me, but in my understanding, this is a fulfillment of what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. In chapter 1, verse 4, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his height. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding, and he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Do you put into effect when all things when the times have, have reached their fulfilment. A book of names. This is the important thing in Revelation chapter 20. Whose names? The names of all those who belong to Jesus. All those whose sin he atoned for on the cross at Calvary. All those who have been made righteous through faith in him, all those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, all those who have been purchased by him. You can use whatever phrase that you like, but it's a book of names. And it's another part in Revelation where I hope this morning, I hope you can read about yourself if you're listening. Because when I read this, about a book of names, I know that somewhere in this book, when God flicks through it, oh yes, Andrew Paul Crane, 30th of December, 1962, came to faith 1st of January, 1984, died on whatever, I don't care. My name. That's the important bit today. All those who have repented of their sin in Jesus Christ. Peter, when he was speaking at Pentecost, said this. The people were, were, were cut to the heart, it says, and they said to Peter, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. Identify yourself with Jesus. doesn't matter about anything else apart from is your name in the book of life? Is your name there? Is it written there? Nothing else is going to save you. Only faith in Jesus Christ and having your name in this book. Because the books are opened and the people are judged according to what they had done. But the book of names means that those people are not judged according to what they had done. Because those people have been set free, set free through Jesus Christ. 
That's what we celebrate when we take communion this morning, which we're going to do in a, a few moments. We celebrate that fact that Jesus has redeemed me from what I'm reading about here. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I have been redeemed from that. I have been brought back from that. So as we finish, and before we take communion, let me just conclude. This is the final act before everything is made new. Okay, after this, there's no coming back after this. At this point, there's no coming back. We see here that the lake of, of fire, that, that, that death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the final thing. Paul said that the last enemy to, to be destroyed is death. <clears throat> and the lake of fire is the home of Satan, the false prophet, and the Antichrist, and all those who follow him. There's no gray areas here in Revelation. This is hell itself. There's no gray areas. You can't wiggle around this. And that's why the gospel is still as relevant today as it's ever been. You know, in March 1933, the German people made Adolf Hitler the chancellor, the, the leader of the country. You know, at that very moment, there was always going to be a consequence to that. There was always going to be a consequence of that decision that they made. And it's only last year that the German people, after all those years, 1933, all the way up to 2020, the German people decided that the consequences had gone on long enough. Long enough. We've suffered long enough. But as I said to begin with, they had the liberty to do that. But in this life now, we make decisions and our actions, they follow us beyond death to this point in the Bible. And those consequences follow us here. And if they're not dealt with through Jesus Christ, then people will find themselves in the lake of fire with Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet and everyone else. And the only way they can be dealt with is through Jesus. Jesus made some very easy statements, didn't he? And whether you're here, whether you're listening, and most of you might be Christians, I don't know. But whether you're listening or what, Jesus made a couple of brief statements, which I've got written up here, but I'm going to read them out if you are listening and you're not here. Jesus said, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Now, if you entered through the narrow gate, and I, you know, I hope you have, then rejoice that your name is in the book of life. Rejoice in that. We're going to take communion, okay, in a moment. Rejoice in the fact that you can take communion and your book is in the, your name is in the book of life. Your name is in the book of life. That's why I love that. If your name is written there, not just Christian one, or there's a herd of people from Calvary Christian Fellowship in Silksworth, Christian one, Christian two, Christian three, your name is written there. Celebrate that. Think about that. Think about the joy that that brings you. And I want, hopefully, I want you to take that into the next four Sundays. I know Revelation's gone on a long time, okay? 
I get that, right? Now, I get the fact that people might be revelation weary, okay? We're coming to an end, I promise you. We've only got four, four messages. But we've got four great messages because we've got two great chapters, chapters 21 and chapter 22. So rejoice in that. Celebrate these chapters. Think about them and think about the fact that your name is in that book of life and that what we're going to read about in the next couple of chapters is your future, your inheritance. Let's pray before we go to communion. Shall we just go to communion? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. What a, what a joy it is to us. Lord, and we come and before we take communion, Lord, I want to thank you for our Lord and our Saviour. I thank you that you sent Jesus. I thank you that he was willing to give his life <coughs> for, for, for me, for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I thank you that he atoned for my sin on the cross and for the sin of those who know and love him as their Lord and Saviour. And I pray, Lord, that we might reflect that as we take communion now. We might focus our hearts on that. Lord, sometimes we, we do these things and we, it's just a, it's, it can be habitual, Lord. We just take communion. But Lord, I pray, Lord, you'll help us to focus our hearts on the cost this morning. I pray, Lord, for anyone who's here or anyone who's listening, Lord, who doesn't know you as Lord and Saviour, Lord, that they, again, they would focus their hearts on what these words really mean. There's no going back from, from this moment in time. And if we're not standing with Jesus, and we're not on the victory side, we'll be with those who are defeated and spend eternity with hell in hell. So I pray, Lord, for anybody who's listening, anyone who's here, Lord, that you would bring your salvation to their hearts. Lord, I thank you that my name, I know my name is written in your book. I thank you for the names of my brothers and sisters who are in that book too. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that we might celebrate all together, Lord, especially as we look at those last couple of chapters of Revelation, that we might, we might rejoice as your people in your word. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>